All right, type two, turn to Romans one. I don't know how long this is gonna take. We're gonna be here for a while. It's only one service, that's okay, okay? You, got, you guys came out, you're excited, okay? So Romans chapter one, we're gonna talk about identity. Here's the big idea with identity. Who are you, right? I mean, that's a big question. And many people, I would say most Americans, their identity is how they feel about themselves. And that's why some of you are so depressed on Monday and you feel so good on Tuesday and then you feel bad again on Wednesday. You know, and you're like, I don't know what I should post because I want people to like me. So what should I post so that people feel good about me so then I feel good about me? Some of you, it's like, well, you know, I'm what I do or I'm what I've done. So you're like, this is awesome, I have a PhD. And they're like, well, I can't work at all. No one wants to hire me, this is terrible, okay? That's, that's actually a very normal experience for a PhD student. I'm at the top of the world, it took me seven years, I can't get a job, okay? Uh, ups and downs, ups and downs. This is why the way that you introduce yourself, the way that you think about yourself can often make you feel good or feel bad. This is why often we'll be defined by our roles, our responsibilities, our relationships. I won't review last week's sermon, but I'll only say this, that, and I think this is an irrefutable logical fact, that for you to have a formative and foundational identity that doesn't change, you have to have somebody, or at least something, but somebody outside of you who is fixed, who does not die, who cannot change to name you. And we said, that's the power of the gospel, that God comes, he says this, you're made in the image of God. What gives you identity and value and worth and significance is that God made you, Christ died for you. That's where our value, significance, worth is. And if you want to have a holistic view of yourself, you're a sinner who's saved by grace. So, so that was the, the foundation of identity. And by the way, we're in an identity series uh, for six weeks. And uh, each Monday, you're gonna be getting an identity study guide. It'll be on our website, you'll get emailed it. Um, and we are very, very excited about this series. We plan out, just so you guys know, we plan out 12 to 18 months in advance, the series. So a lot of people have been like, this is awesome. This idea of identity, right? We're going through this, this is awesome. It's like, well, praise the Lord, because we, we, we planned this 18 months ago before anybody knew there was gonna be a, a global pandemic. Um, but we're going back to the basics and to the foundations. And so today, we're gonna talk about the identity of being a worshiper. So turn with me to Galatians, or sorry, Romans. That was Galatians last time. Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one and verse 16 says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's what forms my identity. For it is the power of God to do what? Well, let's see. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's the big idea for today. The gospel creates worshipers of God. It's like, if you're a note taker, you're like, I gotta leave early. You know, okay, that's it. That's the big idea. Now, be careful. I, I, I try to be very careful with my words. I didn't say the gospel creates worshipers. You already are a worshiper. Every person is a worshiper. In fact, all you did today was worship. Somebody's like, no, no, I played golf. No, you worshiped. So like, no, 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 I worked. No, that's worship. The question is, the question is always, not are we going to worship, but what are we going to worship? And in the Bible, you can say, I'm gonna you know, worship the person of Christ or people. I'm gonna worship uh, my savior or stuff. I'm gonna worship the creator or I'm gonna worship the creation. That's our only decisions, that's our only choice. And so Paul is going to push on us and say, listen, the gospel is so powerful. It can change what you worship what your life is centered upon. But to do that, we're gonna to have to cover the rest of Romans one. And let me just warn you, this is a dark portion of scripture. It's going to get very dark because to understand the cross, you have to understand the terrible condition of humanity. And I wrestled, I'll just tell you right now, I wrestled with preaching this passage to you. I wrestled with stopping at verse 24 and 25 like most people do because they're afraid to say what verses come afterwards. We'll get there, and I'll explain that. Um, but I think this is going to be very, very helpful, because often it is in our, the hardest truths where, where the greatest gold comes out of. 
So follow me along, uh, along with me. Here's what I want you to see. Big idea, number one, everybody knows that God exists because of their conscience and creation. Everybody knows that God exists because of conscience and creation. What we're gonna see in this, and this is what Paul always does, he always wants to take you back to the very bottom of things to the very foundation and floor of things. So what he's going to do is he's going to say the reason that everybody needs to worship God, here's the fundamental reason. Before he's gonna to get to the cross of Christ, he's gonna say everybody needs to worship God because everybody knows God exists. And immediately you're gonna go, well, what about all the nuns? And, and not the ladies in black. The, the uh, what are called the nuns, the, 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 those who have no religious affiliation. Or what about the atheists? Well, let's look at the scripture and let's see what this says. I want you to see verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. This is interesting. Paul just gets right to it. Earlier he says the righteousness of God. Now he says the wrath of God. Okay, he says, and we'll get back to that. I'm not gonna avoid that. We're just gonna come back to the wrath of God and talk about it extensively. But he says this, the wrath of God is revealed, made evident, you can see it. In fact, by the end of this sermon, you're going to know and you're going to look around and you're going to immediately be able to see the wrath of God in our culture. Paul's gonna say it's evident, it's revealed. Here's what he says. It's against all ungodliness. What is God's wrath? It's his it's his anger against all sin. That's what it is. He says this, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this is amazing. Here's what he said. God has given everybody an internal and an external witness that he exists. This is, this is amazing. So here's what this means. If you were in a room by yourself with your eyes closed, you still have access to God and know that he exists. This, this is also, if you're like, why do you want to go to the lake? Why do you want to go to the mountains? Why do you want to go to the beach? Why do you want to go to the Grand Canyon? Why, why, why do people love to travel so much? Well, it's that they have an external witness. They see God in creation. Now, here's what he says. This, he says there's a mass conspiracy. I want you to see this. He literally says, uh, the, the end of verse 18, I want you to see this arise right out of scripture. Here's what people do. The wrath of God's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Here's what it's saying. Everybody knows about God, but they push it down. They say, I don't like to think about that. I don't actually, I, I, it's the, it, the language is violent. It's the language of trying to drown somebody who's trying to get up. And this is what all of us do. In fact, what, we're gonna get to some things today and you're going to try to push the, the truth down as I start talking to you. Some of you do this every time somebody finally talks to you about your marriage and you know you're a jerk, or you know you're, you're not doing the right thing, and you want to get defensive immediately, and you want to bring up six things you're doing right, what are you trying to do? Suppress it. What are you trying to do every time you distract yourself, which is part of the reason you don't like being anywhere without noise? I knew a guy one time, he's like, I, his, he lost his phone on a seven-hour ride. He's like, I didn't know what to do. It was just me and my thoughts, and I don't know how to work the radio, you know? It's like, it's a dangerous place. Have you ever, you know, that's why, by the way, that's why many of us will wake up at three in the morning and feel guilty about something. It's like, it's the only time where you're quiet enough that you haven't pushed everything down into your subconscious. Because then it shows up in your dreams and it shows up other places. And he's saying there's this mass conspiracy to push things down, to rationalize them. This is why guys like Richard Dawkins, he's one of the famous atheists. When he teaches biology, he literally teaches his students. He says, all right, guys, when you, when you take biology you're going to look through the microscope and it's going to look like it's designed. You're going to have to keep telling yourself it's not designed. What, what, do, you, what do you call that? That's the pressing down and the pushing down of, I, I mean, here's what it is. I don't wanna think about God. I don't like to be convicted. The way that it shows up for a lot of us is we read a verse and go, there's gotta be other verses that say the opposite of this, right? 
Or there's gotta be somebody with a PhD who says this verse doesn't mean what it means because it doesn't let me do what I wanna do sexually. It's what's called, it's, it's the deepest idea. It's that we don't wanna think about God and we keep pushing it down. But then I want you to see what it says. It says this next, even more clearly, God gives us another thing. For what can be known about God is plain to them. That's the first obvious thing. Because God has shown it to them. God is literally, it's, God is not passive. He's actively teaching through creation. Theologians call it general revelation. The greatest miracle that ever happened actually is not the resurrection. Theologians consider that the second greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is creation. That God created everything out of nothing. Here's what it says. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He points to creation. Here's what he's saying. Darwinian, atheistic evolution is a lie. The idea that you came from nobody, you're here for no purpose, and you're going nowhere. Right? What does that kind of thinking lead to? When it's too painful, I quit. That's a darkened mind. That's where that logic goes. Oh, so nobody created something for no purpose. That makes sense, except that it doesn't. And so this is, this is now it's not saying that by looking at creation, you understand Christ. There's a difference, we can get to this, between general revelation and special or specific revelation. But the whole idea is that God gave us this incredible creation that shouts out that God exists. The fact that every day that we get up and brush our teeth and look in the mirror, we see the image of God. What you have to do to push that down. It's, it's such that it says people are without excuse. Every once in a while someone will go, what about the person who doesn't know about God in Africa and dies? Does that person go to heaven? Yes, because that person doesn't exist. Do you understand? Biblically, that person does not exist. There is no person on earth who does not know about God and push it down. And that's what they're judged for. So it gets worse. So it says this, um, verse 21, for although they knew God, it's a, again, it's like they know God. Now, not intimately like a Christian does, but intellectually. They're able to understand God, but they want to suppress and push that down. It says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Second big idea, everybody worships either the creator or the creation. So God reveals himself in conscience or creation, in other places too. And then you decide, am I going to worship the creator, accept the knowledge that I know, repent of my sins, trust Christ, or am I going to worship the created things? And so here's what happens. It says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give him thanks. So you get there, the heart of worship. It's thinking and thanking. You go, well, what does it mean to worship God? Think about God, thank God. Think about God rightly, thank God full-heartedly. You know, it reminds me, we have... Uh, we don't have a ton of scripture up in our house, but one of the verses that we have, and we've had for a while now, and even every time when I'm in the right mind and I see it, I, I can be overwhelmed by it, is just the, the, the passage from Joshua that says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I think part of the reason is when I was a brand new Christian, I go over Pastor Dave's house. I've told you some of my story before. His parents have me early on. I go over there, and that's the first thing I see. And it just had such an impact on me. It's like, this is what our life's about. If you, if you just want to know, it's like, if you, it's like, how do you fight sin in your life? It's like, start honoring God publicly. I knew one guy, he says, every time I was tempted to look at something I shouldn't look at, and I really felt tempted, he said, you know what I did? I went and shared the gospel. 
Because as soon as I started talking about Christ and what he meant and how he changed my life, you know, looking at stuff just seemed really little. And the problem is, you know, we, we live in a culture that doesn't honor anything. And then he says, and they, and they didn't thank God. Now, this is interesting because, you know, we don't tend to think of thanks, thankfulness as a big deal. The Bible says it's a big deal. The reason that the wrath of God is coming because people are not thankful about God. You know, it's like, you know, I always think every year at Thanksgiving, like, what are people thankful for here? What does the secular person, and by the way, Tim, Tim Keller says there's no such thing as a secular person. A secular person thinks they don't worship. A pagan person. Actually, Americans who are not Christians are pagans. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. That would actually be a, a accurate way to talk about them. It's not that they don't worship, it's not that they don't worship, it's just they don't worship Jesus, they worship other things. That's what's called being a pagan. Anyway, so, so the, the idea of Thanksgiving is that we're not thankful, and this is a huge issue. I was reading a book on counseling, and this guy was talking about how he would deal with these people with addiction. And you know, be, you know, there's five or six or seven or eight main kinds of addiction that you deal with, substance abuse or alcohol or you know, sexual addiction or, or other, other things like that, um, eating disorders. And, and he said, as I would deal with these people, he said, I would talk to them. And maybe this is your story. They'd always think that was the only area that was wrong with their life. They'd be like, well, if I could just stop looking at porn. If I could just stop being so darn angry with my kids, you know, if I could just get kind of my, you know, pill habit under, if I could do that one thing, then my life would be basically good. And he said, what I had to show them is they're just incredibly ungrateful people. An ungrateful person looks at pornography. That's what happens. That's the natural outworking of the ungrateful heart who doesn't want God in their mind. That's what they look at. The ungrateful heart can't forgive other people. It's bitter, it's angry, it's jealous, it's resentful. It lies. All those sins are symptoms of that in that area of my life. I'm not honoring God and I'm not thankful. And what's interesting is the longer you're a Christian, the more you can subdivide your life up into, I think and thank God in this area. I think and thank God in this area. And well, now my kids and wife are gone, so I'm gonna do whatever I want in this area. Or I'm going on vacation here, so in this, in, this, in this area of my life, I don't need to think and thank God. And it's very dangerous. See, the Bible scares us. It scares us for, us, for our good. Here's what it says happens if we don't. Verse 21, halfway through. But, because they wouldn't think and thank God. But, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what happens is when you don't think about God, it's not that you start thinking about a bunch of great things. It's not that, what you, that, not, that you become neutral and nothing fills your mind. It's the idea that negative things begin to fill your mind. Look here, verse 22, claiming to be wise. You know, they, I don't know, they have a PhD, you know, they have more degrees than Fahrenheit, right? Uh, they, they, they think that they are smart, claim, they're, they're educated beyond their intelligence. Um, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchange, and this is another common theme, you'll see this in another verse. First it's gonna say they exchange the glory of God, next it's gonna say they exchange the truth for a lie. So it's all about exchanging. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, and then it gets worse. And this is progressively, this is what sin does, it gets progressively worse in your life. So they begin to, to worship images of mortal man, birds, animals, and to the point where it says creeping things. This is the idea that when you stop worshiping God, you don't worship nothing, you start worshiping everything. I wanna read you one of the most famous quotes. This is from David Foster Wallace. Sadly, he killed himself. Sadly, he was a non-Christian who was very honest about life. And it ate him up. And here's what he wrote. He wrote about worship as a non-Christian. Here's what he says. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. 
This is David Foster Wallace. <clears throat> there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if there where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never even feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this already. And look what he says. The trick is trying to keep this in front of our daily consciousness. We're suppressing the truth. This is written by a non-Christian. He... Here, what Paul's talking about is idolatry. And I won't get into it a lot because we don't have a ton of time and I've talked about it before. But idolatry is when you take a good thing and you make it a God thing. When you worship the creator over the creation. When you take a desire and you bring it up to the point of a demand. It's basically when you find a substitute for God that you think will save and satisfy you. And they're always, you know, we, and we tend to think like Westerners, Americans, you know, we, we, we do it with uh, C.S. Lewis calls uh, chronicle snobbery. We're chronological snobbery, where we basically say something like this, isn't it so silly how back in the day people had little idols? Like actually, if you don't know this, one of the most common idols people have had historically is a little idol that they kept in their pocket that they pulled out all the time to look at to hope it would give them luck. Sounds a lot like our phones. Interesting. You know, and idolatry is hard to see, right, in your own, in your own nation. I told you before the story of the, the pastor who went to India, and he was talking to the lady, and he says, will you come to America? She goes, I can't stomach the uh, idolatry. He's like, you live in India. She's like, no, I can't stand all your fast food restaurants, how you idolize food. I can't stand all the entertainment that you guys have. I can't stand the worship of sports there. And he realized, maybe you're not realizing, wow, we call one thing might look like idolatry and might be idolatry to another person. And so he warns of idolatry. Tim Keller says there are four main idols in your life, the idols under the idols. Comfort, power, control, and approval. Comfort, power, control, and approval. And, and the question that I would leave you with is, uh, uh, when we talk about idolatry is, which one of those are you wrestling with the most during this COVID crisis? You know, like which one has been pressed on the most? For me, it's just comfort. Like I had a couple trips I was really looking forward to. You know, I had a couple of my favorite restaurants that I haven't been able to go to, you know? So there was a lot of things in my life that I was just excited about. I feel the pressure of control. I no longer have, not that I ever was in control, but I felt like I was. And you, so sometimes stress and suffering can reveal the idols in our life. But Paul, he says, this is what happens. We settle for idols, which leads to the next thing. You will not worship Jesus if you don't understand the wrath of God. So I'm going to go back and talk about the wrath of God for a few minutes. Because we have to talk about the wrath of God. We have to talk about things nobody wants to talk about. Um, you know, I've told you that saying before, that famous old saying, uh, what you most want to find is where you least want to look. What you most want to find is where you least want to look. Why? Because you've never looked there. <laughs> you've been afraid to look there. Everyone told you don't look there. That's actually where you need to look. So, and, and there might be some gold, even as we talk about the wrath of God. Here's what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So people sometimes say, I don't want to talk about a God of wrath. Well, you know, that's actually a very, just so you know, that's a very modern, that's a very Western thing. So people in Africa, people where there's lots of oppression and injustice, guess what? 
they love to talk about the justice and wrath of God. It's just us shallow, surface-level, overly simplistic Americans. Can't God just be loving? Well, actually, if he is loving, then he's going to be wrathful. Because anytime you love something, I mean, if you really love it, not just have feelings, you know, but if you really love something or are committed to its good, you're going to hate the things that come to hurt it, the things that come against it. So the opposite of love isn't wrath. The opposite of love is indifference, right? So if you've ever done counseling, like the most scary couple ever is the couple that's like, I just don't care anymore. It's like, oh gosh. You know, and that happens actually sometimes with parents and kids. As kids go, well, I don't care about you anymore. Go, wreck your life. That's, a, that's, that's, a, that's the opposite of love. You know, if you actually still fight with your spouse, there might be hope, right? It's like there's actually some anger, there's a love, there's, there's, a, there's a fighting. Well, the Bible talks about the wrath of God. There's many types of wrath of God. Let me give you the three main types. There's the, the, the wrath of God that's called the wrath to come. That's not what this is talking about. The wrath to come is hell. Eternal, conscious, irreversible torment. Nobody talked about it more than Jesus Christ. It's not something that you in, we enjoy talking about. But what it does is what you're going to find is churches that talk about the cross talk about hell. Churches that don't talk about the cross don't talk about hell. Why? Because it's the two places God dealt with the wrath problem. His eternal wrath is, is poured out at the cross of Christ in the lake of fire. But that's not the wrath of God talked about here. That's talked about repeatedly in the Bible. There's a second type of wrath of God. In Romans 13, it's called the wrath of God that the government bears. When it's functioning correctly, it's rewarding good, it's punishing evil. And the Bible actually calls that the wrath of God. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect system because it involves humans. But then there's a third type of wrath, which you see here, which it says the wrath of God is revealed. And what you're going to see is three times it's going to say God gave them up. In fact, I want you to see this. Look at verse 24a. It says this, therefore, in light of people's, in, in light of people's unwillingness to think about God and to thank God, it says God's response is not to be passive, but to actually be active. It says God gave them up. This is what's called the wrath of abandonment. Or it's called the permissive, passive wrath of God. The, the technical theological term is judicial abandonment. It's when God gives you over to the sins of your heart. It's when God says, okay, I'm taking away this guardrail and that guardrail and this restraint and that restraint. And by the way, your restraint, number one restraint is your conscience, but you can break through that. Do you know what your number two restraint is? Family. That's the number two restraint God's given. So it's your individual conscience, it's your family. After that, it's the church, and then it's the government. Once you hit all those, you're in real trouble. What, what, what's, what's happening here is he's saying what happens in people's lives are God gives them over. They, 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 sometimes people will say like things like, man, I'm able to do these sins and not even feel guilty. That's a sign of God's judgment on your life. That actually should be a very terrifying reality that God would give someone over. We should read these kind of things and get God, please, please give my conscience a little bit softer again. Please give me the grace of God to tell somebody, you know, that I've, that I've done these things so I don't go to the next level. Please connect me to community so that I have some brother or some sister to tell the secret to. Because you don't want to be given over to it. Here, and here's what he says. Verse 24b. In the lust of their hearts, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the Creator rather than, sorry, worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. So you see, this is all about worship. Sin is ultimately a worship issue. And then Paul can't but worship God in the midst of talking about the depravity of man. Do you see this? 
He says, he says, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. It's like Paul's like, the whole world's terrible. You know, they're, they're worshiping the false idols. And then he just bursts out and worship himself. And then this is, this is what's very interesting. And this is verse 26 and 27. As I'm even going to read them to you, you're going to want to suppress the truth. I mean, this is what's so interesting. A, pass on, a passage on suppressing the truth, as soon as I'm going to read them, you're like, I can't believe he's reading these. I can't believe we're talking about this. Let, let me just read them. For this reason, God gave them up. That's the second time it's said. There's going to be a third time. To dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The only mention of lesbianism in the Bible is right there. There are many texts on homosexuality. There is only one text on lesbianism. It's right there. Then it says this. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So maybe you've heard of, I think you guys have all heard of medical malpractice. So medical malpractice is very, very serious. And some of you are doctors and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's, a, there's a whole law industry that exists to help with medical malpractice, okay, on both sides. Medical malpractice is, is you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but medical malpractice is some version of like, hey, I know I should, should give you something and I don't. I know you need surgery and I don't. I don't treat you fully or I treat you incorrectly. Well, there's also ministerial malpractice. Ministerial malpractice is I know things the Bible says, but I cherry pick so we never have to deal with them. Or, or I never talk about them rightly. Now, this is, I mean, let's just be very, very clear. This is the clearest condemnation of homosexual activity in the New Testament. Now, I want to talk about this because you've got to ask this question and think with me for a second. Why would homosexuality be mentioned? Now, there's, you know, there's a couple things that people say. Well, on one level, people will go, well, it's just the same as every other sin. And, and that's true to one level. We're going to actually see in a few minutes that there's like 15 other sins mentioned in the same list. Fair enough. But then you got to go, well, why does it get two verses? Why is lesbianism pulled out? What, what, what's, what's it all about? And, well, you know, I, here's the modern response. Well, actually, Paul was homophobic. No, that's not. It, it's so genius, though. It's such a genius thought. It's like so crafty that, that, that somebody would come up that Paul would be homophobic. That's such, such, so genius. It's like if you don't like something, it's because you're afraid of it. It's so smart. Or no, no, it, Paul didn't actually understand modern sexual orientation theory. If Paul understood modern sexual orientation theory, then, <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't have wrote this. You know? I mean, that, 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 I'm serious. And so you've got to go, well, why is it brought up? Well, I will tell you why it's brought up. At least I'll tell you a couple reasons it's brought up. It's brought up not because it's a worse sin than other sins. It's brought up because it's the clearest picture of rejecting God's creation design. So we have to, we have to why is this? It's, that's the first reason. It's the clearest picture, one man, one woman, one lifetime. It's the clearest picture of rejecting that. It's also the clearest picture of idolatry. You fall in love with your own anatomical structure. That's why it's mentioned. Not to be lifted up and say it's way worse than everything else, just to say it's actually the clearest picture of everything that I've been talking about. Now, every time we talk about this, we have to say, listen, all sexual, we're all sexual sinners. We all have disordered sexual desires. We all need to repent of our sexual sin. We have to say that. We need to say that. And, and, and as you try to deal with the, your own sexual lust and proclivities and everything else, the more you try to repent of that, the more compassion you're going to have on other people who have similar or different ones than you. 
So we want to be incredibly gracious with all sexual sinners, but it's never helpful to go, Christ didn't need to die for that, and you don't need to repent of that. So, you know, it's just, but I know that talking about this kind of stuff is, is being a voice crying out in the wilderness. That's what it feels like. So, so we want to talk about these things, but then he moves on. So that's the end. That, he moves on from that. He talks about a bunch of other things. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, I don't want God in my mind. I don't want to think about God. I want to push it down. God gave them up a third time. I mean, it's so crystal clear. People who don't want to think about God are left to their own devices. Here's what it says. I gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So it gets worse. First, it's a futile mind, which is like I think wrongly about a couple things. And then it's a darkened heart. And now it's moving into an entirely corrupt mind and corrupt life. A debased mind is a mind that no longer functions correctly. Okay? Now, think about this. A debased mind, just think about some things. The, 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 and I'm not picking on any one area, and I'm not picking on any one political topic, but the idea that we don't know what bathroom to use in our culture today, that's, that, I'm just telling you, there's no question. That is the result of a debased mind. To think one race is better than another race, that's, that is the outworking of a debased mind. To think uh, we can kill a baby if it's in a womb, that's a debased mind. To think it's okay to look at other people having sex naked on a computer. That's okay to do. That's a debased mind. This is where things go. To think it's okay to do gender reassignment surgery and cut off healthy limbs. That's a debased mind. It's the mind that no longer functions correctly. And we actually know why it happens. Okay, there is, and I know I'm gonna offend somebody with saying this, and I don't, don't know everything I'm, you know, unfortunately I don't get to do this four times and we take the best one, okay? So this is what you got. <laughs> um, <clears throat> true story. So, um, look, a lot of mental illness is biological. Okay, it is. And I don't know about that, and it's medical, and it needs medication, and then some mental illness is a debased mind. It is a mind that has for decades refused to think about God and welcome him into our lives and be thankful for what he's given us. And so it's a mind that doesn't know how to function. It doesn't understand gender. And so the, these are serious, weighty ideas. This is what Paul, Paul's talking about here. Look what he says in verse 29. They were filled. So he's just going on. They were filled with all, see the big words here, like the big ideas here, with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips. It's just, it, all of those sins are mentioned along with homosexual activity. They're all in the junk drawer of we, that, that's the outworking of a debased mind. And then it says this, they're slanderers. They're haters of God. It's always interesting to see what's right next to it. Slanderer next to hater of God. They're insolent, they're haughty, they're boastful, they're inventors of evil. They like to plan out evil. Oh, great, I got an iPad. I wonder what evil ways I could use it. I'm going on a trip and no one will know where I am for a few days on a business trip. I wonder what evil things I could do. It's the, I wonder how I can use the being creative and being made in God's image to creatively sin so no one will find out. This is what it means to be an inventor of evil right next to disobedient to parents. It's like, if you read this list and you're not convicted, you're a sociopath, okay? 
You're a sociopath or a psychopath. They're, they're, you're going to be in this. Some of us are in this list more than others, but we're all in this list. Then he says, that, he says so inventors of evil. This reminds me, so if you don't know this story, St. Augustine, great St. Augustine, you know, when he wrote Confessions, that's considered by many to be the first autobiography ever written. He kind of dives into his own heart. And he talks about his, the evilness of his heart. He talks about stealing pears from a pear tree when he didn't want to eat pears. He said, I didn't steal them because I wanted them. I didn't steal them because I was hungry. I stole them because it's fun to steal. And he just diagnoses, this is like a 300, okay? He diagnoses his own heart and his own sinfulness and says, I just did an evil thing because I thought about doing it and it sounded fun, so then I did it. That's the idea of inventors of evil. 31, he's, they're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I don't have time to get into all of these. But then it says this in verse 32. This is even more of a condemnation. Though they know God's righteous decree, they know what God has said. They know who God is. And then this is even the more damning note, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Here's what he's saying. People know that what they're doing is wrong, and they know they're going to be judged and punished. I don't know if you've, you've ever heard of John Wayne Gacy, terrible person, honestly. I mean, if you don't know who he is, he had sex with many young boys, and then he uh, killed them, and then he buried them in his basement. And um, when the cops came to get him, when they finally got him, he said, would you please kill me? I mean, could you imagine? But he got to the place where he just knew the kind of person he was. He said, would you please kill me? I've been given over so much to these things, I don't want to live anymore. Let me give you a more simple answer. I think sometimes people want to get caught. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Catch me if you can. Frank Abagnale. I love that movie. Frank Abagnale, he keeps calling Tom Hanks. Whatever that character is. He keeps calling the guy. He calls him every Christmas. He wants to get caught. I think there's some people, maybe some of you watching, some of you in here, you're like, I just kind of wish I'd get caught sometimes because I'm doing something that I don't have the power to say no to. But if I could just get caught and come out of hiding, I might actually be able to get some help because I know this deserves to be punished. And so he says, this is it, they deserve. And then he says, verse 32, they not only do they do them, but they give approval. This is the final thing. I not only do this, and this is where our culture's gone. I'm not a doomsday person, but this is where our culture's gone, to the celebration of sin, okay? They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We live in a nation that holds parades for things we should hold funerals for. I mean, think about that. We live in a nation that holds parades and massive walks for things we should be mourning and having funerals for. This is our nation, and I love our nation. And so Paul leaves us with all of this. That's the end of chapter one. You know, we're going to pray and be done now. I'm not going to leave us there, okay? Um, but, but, he, but he leaves us in this very sober reality. And you see, and we're not going to preach through all of Romans now, but you see that we can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Which is why Jesus Christ coming into the world is so significant. Because here's, here's if you learn one thing, take one thing away tonight, I think this would be it. Um, you worship your way into sin, and so you need to worship your way out. 
That's it. It's not behavioral modification. It's not changing 25 things in your life. It's not three new disciplines and five new habits. And all those things might be helpful. But what you realize, if you talk to somebody, they've worshiped their way into sin. They need to worship their way out. And sometimes God has given you over to something temporarily so that, that you'll see how sinful it is so that you can experience the grace of God. I had a guy who, this was, he's not in our church, but I met him when I first moved to Winston. He had visited our church a couple times, and I met with him, and he said, his words, not mine. He said, I didn't really know that I was a sinner who needed to be saved until I became absolutely addicted to the grossest type of pornography. And I just got to the place where I couldn't stop. And what I was viewing was worse and worse and worse, and I just realized I am a terrible person. And it was in that moment that I was able to cry out to the grace of God. So, so how do you worship your way out? How do you worship your way out of sin? You worship your way in. That, that comes more natural to us. How do we worship our way out? We begin to bring God into our thoughts. That's the first thing. What has God said about this area of my life? If you're addicted to materialism and overspending, what has God said about money? What has God said about sex? What has God said about food and drink? What has God said about marriage? Whatever it is, I want to invite, I want to think God's thoughts and I want to honor him in it. And then I want to confess the idols that are in my life. And I want to admit them and I want to ask Jesus Christ to help me. Because here's the great truth. Jesus Christ loves to save sinners. He loves to save people from their idols and from their addictions and God has given people over often that they might experience the grace of God. I want to give us just a chance. If you'll, if you'll bow with me, let's pray together. I want to just give us an opportunity to receive the grace of God, even this night. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and I'm reminded as we close of a verse. John 3.36, the end of that famous passage where we're told whoever believes that God sent his son, that whoever believes would have eternal life, we're told this in John uh, 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Lord Jesus, we understand that the natural condition of man is to have the wrath of God on us. But Lord, we understand that we can transfer trust to you. We can trust that you took the wrath of God for us. Lord, we, I, I ask that if there's anyone in this room right now who needs to receive eternal life, that they would. If there's anybody listening that somehow stumbled across here is not a Christian and just says, I need eternal life, Lord, I pray they would give you their heart right now. They would begin to welcome in the thoughts of you. They would begin to honor you. They'd begin to thank you. Some of you right now, you just need to start thanking God in your heart. You need to say, that's it. I'm going to start being thankful for my spouse. I'm going to start thankful for my ministry, for my job, for my health. That's it. I'm going to start being thankful. Some of you need to say, I'm going to honor God. That's it. I'm honoring God with my money. Today's the day. I'm honoring God in my finances. I'm honoring God in my career. I'm going to go home. I'm going to tuck my kids in bed. I'm going to honor them. I'm going to honor you. Lord, do that work in our hearts, Lord. This passage has made us so thankful for Jesus and his cross work. It's in his name we pray this, amen.